for swordplay. Alex recently, on an episode of Joe Rogan's podcast, world-renowned psychologist Jordan Peterson said, the Bible is more true than true, even the precondition for the manifestation of truth. Nick, I'm surprised that two could have a uh, such deep intellectual conversation through all the all the punching and all the kicking. You know, who knew that UFC fighters had such high IQs? <laughs> there it is, yeah. World-renowned psychologists in the octagon. <laughs> With Jeff Rogan. <laughs> this is Swordplay offering double-edged perspective on Scripture. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood, an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, we are talking about the book of Song of Solomon. That's right, Song of Solomon, and uh, we do have a lot of information to cover today. It'll be a longer podcast, but uh, you could probably listen to it in different segments or different chunks, and we better just get going. So, you know, to introduce this uh, episode, we're actually introducing a series of podcasts that Nick and I are covering over all of the works of Solomon, the, the Solomon Corpus and different works attributed to Solomon. So from what I can tell, you know, when you look back at the Second Temple era, you look at the writings that we found there, uh, they have somewhat of an obsession with all things Solomonic. And that led to the creation of certain writings considered apocryphal, even pseudepigraphical, uh, attributing these writings to Solomon. Uh, but they're not all in our Bible, right? But we want to look at those writings, both the canonical ones in our Bible and the non-canonical ones, discuss them, see what the content says, what purpose they might have served in their own time. And that's our new series about Solomon. So we'll go through Song of Solomon. We'll cover, you know, the other works, Ecclesiastes, his Proverbs, some Psalms, and then some non-canonical works as well, like the Wisdom of Solomon, uh, maybe the Testament of Solomon. So we'll see how far we get. But yeah, strap in. This is a long Solomonic journey that we've entered into, uh, and I'm sure there'll be uh, parts that you like and parts that you hate. Uh, that's my <laughs> anticipation. But uh. <laughs> Well, and you know, this is in response to a request from one of our diligent listeners who asked if we could cover Solomon. And so this is our attempt to meet that request. And just uh, want to say right here at the beginning, again, if, if you have questions or if you want us to cover uh, a book or a subject, uh, we're listening. Uh, you can send those requests in via text. The Swordplay text line is 316-24-SWORD. That's 316-247-9673. Or you can email your requests in, and we'll do our best to fulfill your request. And the email address for that, Alex, is... Uh, swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. That's swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. Well, let's well, go we ahead and guess... dive in uh, yeah. here and... As we do with most other books, we're going to do some introductory material, and we'll begin with author Alex, who wrote Song of Solomon. Yeah, so before I uh, give my introduction material, you know, I just want to give credit where credit's due. I uh, got a lot of helpful things from the Faith Life uh, Study Bible that's produced for Logos Bible Software. I uh, also got some good things from the Anchor Yell Bible Dictionary and from the Dictionary of the Old Testament, uh, the Wisdom 
uh, volume, wisdom literature volume. Uh, that had a lot of helpful introduction material. Uh, and not saying that everything I'm going to say is what they say, but I'm just saying it was it was helpful in my research. Uh, the first verse here in the Song of Solomon attributes this song as belonging to Solomon. And I take that to mean that he is the author. And so um, that doesn't mean that he necessarily is. I think he is. But the underlying Hebrew of the text could suggest, as some scholars have noted, that the work is simply written for Solomon or about Solomon or dedicated to Solomon in his honor. So there are these other possibilities just linguistically, but uh, we're going to build on this and, and say why we think Solomon really is the writer. Uh, what do you think, Nick? I concur. I, I think Solomon is the author, but we, we shouldn't miss that his lovely new wife is the primary spokesperson. Uh, she has most of the lines of dialogue in this, uh, this poem. She's a co-author, as it were, uh, he is the lover, she is the beloved, uh, or, uh, you know, you have the he and the she, uh, their indicators supplied in most English translations to uh, indicate the spokesperson, but it seems as though most of her lines, uh, most of the lines are hers, uh, over 60%, I think is what one figure I saw, but uh, my reading of this, so y you got to uh, you got to recognize that Solomon, he goes through different seasons in his life. And we know about the, the famous fall at the end of his life. But early on, he is Jedediah. He is beloved of Yahweh. He is pleasing to Adonai, uh, 2 Samuel 12, 24, 25, 1 Kings 3, and verse 10. And so my reading of Song of Songs is that Solomon is in his youth. This is before the harem. This is before all the gross idolatry. And he brings all of his holy zeal to this first marriage to the Shulamite woman. And she brings a similar holy zeal and holy ardor to the marriage, having been a wall, not an open door, as will be discussed at the uh, end of the book. So, uh, yeah, I like Solomonic authorship. I think he's the one who write, wrote this, and I think it's very early on as a young man uh, that he writes Song of Songs. Let's press forward here, and then, uh, since we uh, agree Solomon is the writer of this, uh, what does that mean for the date? When was Song of Songs written, Alex? Yeah, so, you know, as you give your introduction material and I give my introduction material, the further we get into this, uh, the audience should notice that we are taking two different trajectories, right? So Sol yep. Solomon in his youth is... Uh, Nick's trajectory. I actually think this is later on uh, after the harem and uh, Solomon has started to accumulate uh, outrageous numbers of queens and concubines. And so that will continue to play itself out. But as we move forward, yeah, the date of the book, the song, the poem, whatever you want to call it, the Song of Solomon, uh, it could have been written during the time of Solomon, which is what we would say since we think he's the author, right? So that would be 10th century BC. Um, many scholars note it could have been written as late as the second century BC. Uh, they say there's a poetic uh, style in the book, and it kind of matches some of the poetic writings from the second century BC. Uh, however, uh, it turns out that when you look at the poetic style of Egyptian love poetry from the, the 11th to 13th centuries BC, uh, that actually most resembles the Song of Solomon. It's not exactly, but when you compare it to everything else that's out there, that matches the best. So the early date seems favorable in my view. 
and uh, I'll take the, the approach that Solomon, he wrote this work. It was in the 10th century BC. Um, but you will come across things like the Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary, which says, you know, you can't really prove and nobody has proven the authorship and date of the letter. And I think that's fair. You know, we're not talking about what has been proven. We're just talking about what's uh, probable or sustainable in the text. What are your thoughts on the date, Nick? Yeah, so uh, the view that this is uh, merely copycat Egyptian love poetry um, can be beneficial, but I think it goes too far in some regards. Uh, While there are resemblances, between uh, Egyptian love poetry and Song of Songs. It's the difference which actually speak volumes. Uh, For example, when describing the actual consummation of the marriage, the data is scant. It's a mere two verses, 4, 16, and 5, verse 1. And uh, Estes, so we're citing our sources, this is from his handbook on the wisdom books and psalms, Daniel Estes, citing Whitesell notes, and I quote, In contrast to the sexually explicit mythological text of the ancient Near East, the author of Song of Songs manages to avoid a charge of pornography by using delicate imagery that preserves dignity and purity even when sexual union is portrayed. And so, uh, end quote, in this way, uh, sex is extolled as a good gift from God. Uh, And it's not something that is uh, crass, Uh, and uh, pornographic in that regard. So while I agree that the similarities between uh, Egyptian love poetry and Song of Songs may lend to help us with uh, dating this at an early date, it is the differences that are noteworthy in the actual interpretation of the book from my perspective. Being what it is, uh, Song of Solomon, Song of Songs, it is rather enigmatic and there are some difficulties with the book, right, Alex? Yeah, and here are some of the difficulties that I have found and also some other scholars have found. You know, sometimes in life uh, when people are talking or when you're reading a book or watching a show, a cigar is just a cigar. It's nothing more, right? No need to make a big deal out of it. But that is not the case when it comes to the Song of Songs. Euphemism abounds throughout the letter. A cigar is never a cigar in the Song of Songs. And so that makes it difficult to always interpret with confidence what exactly is being said. You know, it's, you can have your, your uh, average Christian or you could have your most advanced scholar and they will both read through the Song of Solomon with some difficulty. It's difficult to discern who's speaking at times. Uh, it, it's difficult to tell whether it's the man or the woman. Uh, sometimes the, the underlying language helps you figure that out, sometimes not. Uh, Some have even theorized that there are uh, more than just uh, the two main characters of Solomon and the woman, but that there's a third man, that there's this shepherd boy, and that these two men are competing for the love of the woman. There's another difficulty. Uh, Frequently throughout each chapter, the scene changes. They go from one location to another with no no lead-up. It's just, boom, you're in another place. And so trying to piece together a cohesive setting in which the story takes place, that's, that's hard. That's hard to do. And due to all of these difficulties and more, I can see why uh, the allegorical approach had to be taken to make something useful out of this book. And it's tricky because you have this book long held to be authored by Solomon, and I think it is, but who we know, you know, he was an inspired writer at the same time, uh, 
if the book had not been attributed to Solomon, let's say his name was not in it, and if the book was not always kept within these religious texts, which it was, but I'm just saying if it wasn't, <laughs> it would have been just written off. It would have been categorized as an ancient Near Eastern love poem and nothing more. Now that's not what we have because it's got his name on it. It's in the scriptures. So, you know, the question now remains, and, and I think the question was even there in ancient times, what in the world are we supposed to do with this thing, right? Because it's not a simple, straightforward read. Uh, well, here come your choices. Not you know, but so first, <laughs> hold your horses and also Pharaoh's chariots while you're at it. <clears throat> uh, yeah, it's uh, it's that pesky Solomonic attribution which keeps tripping people up, viewing this work as more than it is, not the fact that it's breathed out by God, Theonoustos, delivered by God to his people who cherished it. Uh, but we'll get to canonicity shortly. Uh, dealing with difficulties, you've, you've pointed out some good ones here. Um, one other difficulty focuses on uh, Solomon's lyrical partner, Shulamite, the Shulamite woman, or Shulamith, as it's sometimes uh, portrayed in the literature. Uh, what is a Shulamite? And all manner of interpretive moves have been postulated for explaining this term. One of the popular ones includes Woman of Shulem, a city otherwise unknown in the Old Testament. However, another, and I think better, way of understanding the term rests on the Hebrew word, uh, the Hebrew root, uh, which transliterates for us as S-L-M. It's the same root from which we get the name Solomon. Uh, the, the name Solomon is derived from that root. And so she could be the Solomonis, the peaceable or perfect one. And so as Solomon is peaceful, his name uh, could mean that, his female poetic counterpart is likewise a person of peace. Uh, and so there's maybe a play on words here in, in, in that usage. So difficulties abound in this book. And as a result, it has led to a number of different approaches, different ways in which the book has been interpreted. Alex, talk for a minute about how one approaches Song of Solomon. You know, just a uh, quick question I was thinking as you were as you were talking. The term Shulamite, right, that's in chapter 6, if I remember right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we'll get to our chapter summaries and, and talk about what we think that means when we get there. That's the only place it's mentioned. Is that right, Nick? Do you recall I'm, any other places? I believe so. Okay. So you take it that it means that she's a peaceful person like Solomon, this counterpart in this marriage. Um, did you did you run across anything that said the term could mean belonging to Solomon, like she is Solomon's? Um, is, I don't would, recall seeing that, but I... I know it. I noticed that in your notes, and so I assumed right. that you had run across that. Yeah, I ran across that. And so uh, not that that would be incompatible with your approach, right? Because uh, she belongs to Solomon. Like, that's an acceptable way to talk about marriage, right? I am yours, you are mine. Um, the question I think we're going to have when we get there is uh, she belongs to him in what way? And so you say precious first wife, but, you know, we'll we'll see how the, the two trajectories pan out as we get to the chapter summaries. But, yeah— 
that's kind of the the deal with the approach and why the approach to the letter is probably the most important part of this study because the the approach determines the trajectory uh and there are three main approaches that i think have been seen throughout history and so the first approach is seeing the book uh, uh handling the book in an allegorical way as being about yahweh and israel spiritual husband and wife and then you have a similar approach, which is the second main approach. But instead of opting for an allegory about uh, Yahweh and Israel, uh, you opt for an allegory about Christ in the church, uh, which is you know not that much different. Uh, Origen took that view around 250 AD. He was uh, supposedly the first person to describe the Song of Songs as a drama, describes the different characters that make up the play. And there are some supporting characters in there, like the chorus of women, uh, mentioning of a mother, mentioning of brothers. Uh, you know, during the Middle Ages, this was pretty interesting. The Song of Songs was apparently uh, the Old Testament book that received the most amount of commentary out of all Old Testament books during the Middle Ages. So that's pretty impressive. And when you go through and you look at most of those commentaries, uh, they use that traditional approach that this is about Yahweh and Israel or Christ and the church. And so they use Song of Solomon not as a historical reading of actual events, but as a springboard into a dialogue about divine love. Now, there is a third approach that's more of a modern take uh, when we're talking about the, the most abundant approaches. This is where scholars today simply see the Song of Solomon as a collection of poems about human love that have been strung together uh, by the hand of an anonymous editor, uh, but how many poems were there strung together? Why were they strung together in the first place? These things are endlessly debated. And so there are some problems I see with all of these three approaches. It's not that they're the only approaches, by the way, but here are the things I see. The problem I see with the traditional allegorical approaches uh, is that it hopelessly really tries to sanitize the song in order to read it as a tome on the joys of monogamous love. And I think that's going to be quite a stretch. There are too many allusions to the harem in the song to be written off as a pleading for monogamous love. But that's the, the direction I think you're forced to take when you want the whole thing to be about Christ and the church or Yahweh and Israel. The problem with the modern approach is that... Uh, you don't end up with any kind of agreement or outline or interpretation. It doesn't help you to interpret the book at all. It still gives you no setting or background for the story that takes place. Uh, some other approaches, some minority approaches, we could say, uh, that I came across. There was once a paper I read on the Song of Solomon, and it reads it through the lens of the Solomon Magus tradition. So that's a strand of uh, teaching in the Second Temple era that viewed Solomon as this most powerful magician to ever live. And uh, this work was done by a guy named Jesse Rainbow for the Harvard Theological Review, Volume 100, Number 3, in July 2007. Now, in that paper, the author, he, he says that when you read the Testament of Solomon, which is definitely like a Solomon Magus writing from the first century AD, it has some echoes in it from the Song of Solomon. And... That's true. It does have a few echoes in there. You know, why Why would they not draw from Solomonic works as new ones get produced in his name? And, you know, you read through the paper. I think it's pretty entertaining. The main problem is, is that he doesn't show how seeing Song of Solomon through the Solomon Magus tradition actually gives you a cohesive purpose and interpretation of the whole book. It just gives you these few echoes that show up later in the Testament of Solomon. Uh, so it proposes that the song is a magical text, but it doesn't show how that 
purpose like helps you interpret the song as a whole and that's that's the problem here is how do what do we do with this book how do we interpret it as a whole there's another minority approach that I found, and actually it's the approach that I've adapted uh, for myself that I will be taking as we do our chapter summaries. Uh, this approach was originally put forward by a guy named Solomon B. Freehoff in the Jewish Quarterly Review, uh, Volume 39, Number 4. This was in April of 1949, so 70 years ago. Freehoff approaches the Song of Solomon, the whole book, as a dream, as a sequence uh, a, a a bunch of dream sequences put together. And to me, this makes a lot of sense, you know, especially when you you want to explain the abrupt scene changes, the exaggerated fantasy, the disjointed timeline. Freehoff reasons that if it is a dream, the whole thing, not just a few sections, then it also would give you a good reason to use the whole thing, uh, approach it with an allegorical interpretation. Because, you know, you have dreams being commonly thought of in the ancient world as coming from god and so if this book is a collection of dreams then like why would the dreams not mean something you know beyond higher than what is uh you know at face value and so uh he he gives his arguments you know there's a few things that i highlight some are from his arguments some are my own arguments for why this book makes sense as a record of this woman's dreams so first, there's the refrain, which uh, serves as kind of a purpose statement, found in chapter 2, verse 7, chapter 3, verse 5, chapter 8, verse 4. And it says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the, by the hinds of the field, that you do not arouse or awaken love until it pleases. Now, this is kind of a riddle, right? Different interpreters have proposed various meanings for it. So there's not a consensus as to what this refrain means. But in this approach... It makes sense out of the refrain by interpreting it as meaning, don't wake me up, I'm having a nice dream, right? Don't wake this woman up, uh, she's still dreaming about these pleasant things, so let her sleep, let her rest. So there's a second highlight here. Uh, there are several verses that give the impression that the woman in the story is asleep. It does talk about her being asleep. You have, uh, in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, On my bed, night after night, I sought him, but did not find him. Well, most interpreters agree that like this is a dream sequence happening in this section. Because how do you seek someone while in bed? Well, in your dreams is a good answer for that question. Uh, there's another example in chapter 5, verse 2, also mostly accepted by scholars as being a dream sequence, where uh, the woman says, I was asleep, but my heart was awake. And again, what follows that verse, 5, 2, sounds like a dream. You know, the man's at the door, he's knocking, then he mysteriously disappears, then all of a sudden... Uh, the dream turns to a nightmare. The woman's in the city. She gets beat by the guards. She's stripped. Uh, and then after that, you know, you have other things that make it sound like a dream. You have a another refrain that says, until the coolness of day when the shadows flee away. Well, again, it's kind of like a riddle. It's like, what does that mean, right? You see it in chapter 2, verse 17, chapter 4, verse 6. This could be a description of someone waking up, right? Until the coolness of day when the shadows flee away. That could be sunrise. That could be when you wake up in the cool of the morning. So here's a third highlight, right? So you got this wedding procession in chapter 3, verses 6 through 11. Uh, verse 8 says that there are 60 guards around Solomon to protect him from the terror of the night. And when you dig into the Hebrew, you find a featured creature. That's right. And we covered that in season 3, episode 1. And this featured creature is Lilith. Who is Lilith? Well, she's a night demon. 
uh, also referenced in Isaiah 34, 14, uh, Psalm 91, 5. Uh, this demon was well known in the ancient Near East. Uh, some of the things she's known for is attacking women, newborn children, and newlyweds. But it's at nighttime, right? So here's the thing. Swords will not help you kill a demon. Demons are spiritual beings. Uh, the wedding ceremony isn't where Lilith attacks. It's She attacks at night in the bedroom. And so this makes sense if the wedding procession then that is described in chapter 3, verses 6 through 11, happens in the dream world because that's where one would be vulnerable to a night demon. So from this approach in the woman's dream world, Solomon's protected by these uh, soldiers from the night demon. And a fourth note is that, uh, you know, it's not clear if the man in the song, if Solomon is his own character, like if he's giving an account of what he said, but rather it seems that the woman is recalling what he said. So chapter two, verse 10 says, my beloved responded and said to me, and then the man speaks, right? So the narrator the whole time, I think is actually the woman. And this makes sense if it's the woman describing her dreams. So I'll be approaching our chapter summaries from this perspective that the entire book is a series of dreams had by the woman who, as we'll see in chapter one, works as a poor day laborer. And I also propose that uh, she was born and raised in a harem specific, specifically existing for the purpose of raising young virgins for King Solomon. Uh, but due to her unlucky circumstances, uh, she ends up being a servant for the other virgins or concubines of the house. And this woman then, uh, in her lowly position, she has these dreams, these fantasies, these sexual fantasies where she and Solomon are madly in love. She's chosen by him above all the other women in the land. And, you know, in these dreams, you have these delusions of grandeur that include, you know, all the queens, all the concubines praising her beauty in chapter 6, verse 9. And then you have uh, her dreaming of Solomon calling her, you know, the daughter of a prince, uh, basically a princess, right? In chapter 7, verse 1, though it's obvious she's not from a royal lineage. And, you know, if you, you look at the song, it reminded me a lot of a modern movie called Memoirs of a Geisha. So if you haven't seen Memoirs of a Geisha, you should go watch Memoirs of a Geisha. It is quite terrible, but that's why you need to see it. <laughs> and like the movie, the Song of Solomon is narrated by the main character, which is a woman, right? But the whole thing was actually written by, wait for it, a man. And that's right. Solomon, he wrote the Song of Solomon. It wasn't written by this woman. So this is Solomon's idea of what women fantasize about. What do they what do they what do women want? It's me. Me, of course. And so I think it's it's obvious that this is written by a guy. You know, you get to the end of the song. And the woman basically says, look, Solomon, you don't even have to pay me to have sex with you. You can keep the thousand shekel price tag, chapter 8, verse 12. So what is the purpose of this book? What <laughs> so fast, my friend? <laughs> Woo, that was a long way around the mountain. Uh, so it, as, as far as approach is uh, concerned, uh, method of interpretation uh, you're right in pointing out that the, the history of interpretation of the Song of Songs shows that the allegorical method has been the predominant method for both Jews and Christians. Your boy Origen is just one early example of this. He produced 10 volumes of commentary on the book, and it's all revealing the love of Christ for his church. And this held pretty consistently throughout the medieval period. It persists even into today, especially in devotional literature. The problem with this method is that it ends up being quite unwieldy, ending up with uh, quite a subjective approach, uh, quite a bit of subjectivity in the interpretation. Now, related to the allegorical method is the typological method, 
which recognizes the book as a historical work by its own right, but then it turns to find a parallel link, especially in the New Testament. So while the book is about love between a man and a woman, that image points to God's love for Israel in the larger Old Testament canon, or God's love for the church in the New Testament, or both. Uh, now, of course, the trouble with this method is that it runs too quickly past the literal sense and what the text originally meant in its original context, and it also falls prey to some of the concerns for the allegor me allegorical method proper. A third method of interpretation is a fairly recently developed method, the 19th century is when it uh, kind of came around, is what's called a dramatic reading. It's a drama involving not just two, but perhaps even three. There's a love triangle, but, well, and this is kind of falls prey to the same issues that the allegorical method falls prey to, where you just have a plethora, an overabundance of ways of reading. You have chaos. A multiplicity of readings have been developed since there's no instructions for how the dramatic reading is to be done. One ends up reading these instructions as well as plotting characters into the text. And so this method ends up being an exercise in ingenuity rather than solid exposition. Now, and here's where I'll differ from Alex, and this will come out more and more as we work through the book uh, as a whole, the interpretation method that I'll utilize, it has roots that go back to both Jewish and Christian exegetes. It is the literal method. And by this, it's not meant that, you know, where there are metaphors used, we ought to read them in a wooden manner. And so the woman literally has a tower for a neck or anything like that. Instead, the best way of reading Song of Solomon is as it presents itself, a love poem between a man and a woman with others encouraging them in their love. There is a historical reality lying in back of the poem, and far from being something nefarious or untoward, it is holy, it is good, it is preserved for the saints of God to celebrate by giving thanks to God for the inexpressible gift of erotic love within marriage. <coughs> now, <clears throat> briefly, a word about uh, Freehoff's thesis. Uh, the entire book is not a dream. In the 70 years since Freehoff's paper was published, his thesis has been challenged and answered uh, so completely that his paper is rarely cited in contemporary scholarly works except to dismiss it. For example, Tanner in uh, 1997 wrote an article for Bibliotheca Sacra, The Message of the Song of Songs, and after citing Freeman's, uh, Freehoff's uh, article in, the, in a footnote, the very next sentence uh, Tanner writes, to suggest that a great extent of the book is actually a dream is going too far. It is acknowledged there are dream sequences in the book, uh, three verses one through five, five verse two and following. Uh, they are introduced as such by the language, by the text itself. But the entire book is not a dream sequence. Again, that just simply goes too far. So that's a bit about approach for, and, and I think shows, kind of lays the, the groundwork here for the two different trajectories that Alex and I will be pursuing. Uh, so with that in mind, let's move forward and talk about purpose. Why was this book written? Alex? So before we get into the purpose, okay, um, I do want to give a little bit of pushback to the waving of the hand to undermine my entire approach that I take <laughs> that you just did. So... 
uh, Freehoff, the way I found Freehoff's work is that he was mentioned, he was cited uh, at the beginning of an entry written by George Schwab in the Dictionary of the Old Testament, the Wisdom Literature volume. That's an important reference work that was put out in 2008. So this is new, up-to-date you know, scholarship. And Schwab didn't endorse Freehoff's theory, but he also didn't dismiss it. He didn't wave his hand and say, that goes too far or that has no merit. It, in fact, he mentions it first before the other uh, writing. So there's no reason to pretend that there's no room at the table for Freehoff's thesis. Uh, there certainly still is, even 70 years after his thesis. Uh, the tricky part that I'm excited to see you know, how you handle is that... Um, if if their dream sequences are only like here uh, in a couple spots, uh, you're gonna have to have the identifying markers in the text that let you know that the dream has come to an end and the woman is awake and back in reality. And so, uh, we'll have to get there in the chapter summaries. But uh, and by the way, so let me just say, also to push back on the pushback, I guess. Okay. The dream, the 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 dream sequence interpretation uh, method is the new kid on the block. The first one, as far as anyone can tell, the first one to suggest it was a uh, Catholic priest in the early 19th century. So in the early 1800s, that's when this dream sequence, or at least reading the whole book in that way, uh, was first postulated. Freehoff, uh, did he grab hold of it? Did he know about it and just microwave it? Or did he kind of view his uh, work as original research? I'm not sure. But this is the, the dream sequence method of interpretation is the new kid on the block. It is not uh, a historical approach uh, to the Song of Songs. Yeah, and I think that's fair. And I did say earlier, you know, it's a minority approach. So I'm not trying to say this was always the interpretation. So I, I, think, that, I think that's fair. Okay, so the purpose um, of the Song of Songs. Let's talk about this for a second. Well, even though it's called a song... Uh, you can read through Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary, and it denies, despite the heading, that this is a song to be sung, uh, but is rather just a poem to be read. Uh, the literary form, it doesn't match up well with any of the other songs that we know about in ancient literature. Uh, some people, they have proposed that the purpose of the letter is to simply celebrate marriage. Uh, yeah, I know that's part of your approach here, Nick. I find this difficult. You know, this is this is not something easily seen if it is actually the truth. Uh, marriage is only briefly mentioned in chapter three. Uh, I guess you do get her called a bride a couple times in chapter four, but it's it may just be one of these brief little blips, one of these scenes from her dream. Uh, most scholars agree that the subject and focus of the letter as a whole is sexual love. So the question is why. Uh, some say this is a way of extolling the joys of sexual love and marriage. I know that's part of your approach. Um, you know, that's a lovely purpose statement. I think that sounds beautiful. I would like that to be the case. But I don't see the text actually aiming towards that goal. Uh, if that's not the purpose, uh, then why is this book in our Bible? What purpose does it serve? And essentially, I see the Song of Solomon uh, in its purpose, uh, well, in what it is, it is. It's basically a deep excursus into the pride and arrogance of King Solomon. And you know, why not? Why would this not exist? Ecclesiastes has him bragging left and right that he pursued both virtue and vice to the highest degree that he could. 
Uh, this book, I think, shows us then the degree to which Solomon was high on his own ego as he spirals into the depths of his apostasy. And if that's true, then it is what it is, right? It's, it's an appendix maybe to Ecclesiastes where it's just vanity. So if that's what it is, the application then is ours. What do we take from that? So the way I would apply this letter in terms of uh, uh, our own lives as, as Christians, as people of God, is that this is a cautionary tale. You know, don't be like Solomon. Don't fantasize about others fantasizing about you. That's uh, vanity. So, Nick, what do you think the purpose is? Well, I, I uh, agree that the Song of Songs is to be read, and it is read by Jews at the Passover uh, every year. Uh, like all God's Word, Scripture is to be read, and I lament that the Song of Solomon has been hidden away from the ears of the saints in the church. I've done uh, just a little bit of work in trying to bring it back out of the shadows, as it were, uh, in my own preaching. I've, uh, in 2019, I preached a couple few sermons from Song of Solomon uh, as part of a, a marriage series that we were doing. Uh, I, I think... I think it earns a PG-13 rating, the reading that I'll uh, uh, propose as we go along, I think uh, shows a way of reading this so that it is not uh, crass or uh, it is not um, uh, something that we ought to hide away, but uh, it is something that is celebrated and is delighted. Now, how one understands the purpose of the book is dependent on how one reads the book. Is it a unified document, a unified poem? or not? Is it to be understood uh, literally or not, perhaps allegorically? Uh, and, and so when one reads Song of Solomon as a unified poem and interprets it literally, and as I defined literal uh, earlier in the approach aspect of this, is, is as poetic expressions of love between the lover and the beloved, I think a recognizable purpose emerges. It is the celebration of uh, erotic love as a good gift of God in the covenant of marriage as he designed and ordained. Again, my approach is that this is Solomon in all the vigor of youth, before the many wives and before the harem, before the gross and sinful idolatry. Solomon, with all the promise of youth, bringing all of that sacred energy to his first marriage with the Shulamite woman. And that comes across uh, in the way I'll be reading the text in this episode. And so we come to the big question. Uh, the question of canonicity. Should Song of Songs be in our Bible, Alex? Yeah, and you know what I'm about to say, I am saying it in a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek manner, right? So should the Song of Songs be in our Bible? You know, probably not. Gasp! <laughs> I mean, it's always been there, right? And it's always going to be there, for better or for worse. Uh, but as you mentioned, like it's it's not preached on, it's not taught, uh, and that's not even like intentional. Like people are saying, don't preach on it, don't talk about it. It's just it's a hard text to handle, and so it's not easily accessible if you want to put it that way. And so that's why it's not, you know, given very much attention. And so essentially, it's not there. <laughs> <laughs> practically speaking. And you know, it's funny, uh, you can make arguments for why the book, uh, why this book, The Song of Solomon, 
uh, should not be in the Bible, why it should be in the Apocrypha, right? Because, uh, you know, is the Song of Song, Song of Solomon, is it is it quoted in the New Testament? Is God mentioned in the Song of Solomon? It's like, well, no and no. Um, and those are the kinds of arguments that are used against the, the books of the Apocrypha. But that's not even really my biggest contention, right? My biggest contention is that without an allegorical interpretation or some clever exegesis, right, then the book... Uh, to see this book, you know, as, as being about Yahweh and Israel, Christ and the church, without that kind of interpretation, it does kind of end up being just Egyptian love poetry. Uh, not exactly, right? Not copycat. I, I like that word that you used there. I wish I would have used it. But uh, <laughs> I don't. Here's the thing. I don't have a problem with allegorical interpretations. Like, I think it's fine. The early church writers, they took the literal, like, setting of the text, and then they used allegory to bring out the higher spiritual teachings. I think that's fine, except for when it doesn't make sense and when it relies on special pleading. And that's what I find to be the case here. Has the book been celebrated by Jews and Christians since ancient times? Yes, but not for its reading as like a literal historical document. It was celebrated because of its reading as an allegory for Yahweh and Israel or for Christ and the church. That's the way it's been in the majority celebrated through the ages. So in this case, it seems like maybe the ancient interpretation of the book is more inspired than its original contents. Nick, what do you think? Yeah, sh- uh, should the song should Song of Solomon be in our Bibles? I think is another way of asking uh, whether Song of Solomon is given by God. Is it theonoustos, uh, to use the term that Paul uses in 2 Timothy chapter 3? And I wholeheartedly affirm that Song of Solomon is God-breathed. Paul says that the oracles of God were entrusted by God to the Jewish people, Romans 3 and verse 2. And they faithfully received and stewarded that sacred deposit from the writing of the text all the way into the time of Christ and his church. These sacred writings, the scriptures, Song of Solomon being a part of them, they were laid up in the temple and they were said to make the hands dirty, that is, they were divinely inspired, spoken by the Holy Spirit, and they were written in Hebrew and Aramaic. So uh, we see very early on the threefold division of the books, law, prophets, and writings. The hagiographa is uh, the writings there, the sacred writings. That's very early attested among the Jewish people, and Song of Solomon belonged to that third division, the, the sacred writings, with other sacred writings, Job, Psalms, perhaps with Uh, Ruth appended to it, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Daniel, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Uh, And so Song of Solomon was laid up in the temple. And then in the church age, you get to Miletus of Sardis in 170 AD. He travels to the Holy Lands, and he affirms that Song of Solomon is part of the Jewish canon. Uh, And I say that that way because he affirmed what the Jewish canon was uh, among the Jewish people. And both Origen and Jerome, the only two early church writers who knew Hebrew and spent time among the Jews, they both include Song of Solomon in their canon list. All of this is demonstrative, that God is able to not only deliver his word to his people, who then in turn receive it, but then he turns around and he uses these clay jars to preserve his word across time and space so that we can have confidence that when we read Song of Solomon, we are really reading God's word, again, not merely an Egyptian love poem. So that's the introductory material. Man, we got through that pretty quickly. <laughs> well, actually, uh, don't speak too soon. I, I do have a couple of follow-up questions, actually, because you mentioned mm-hmm. some interesting things in there. 
uh, you know, you talked about the Jewish canon, right? So I was thinking about this. Uh, just curious, you know, what you think. When do you think the Jewish canon was decided upon? Like, is there a date or event that you think shows us that the Jewish community said which books were in and which books were out? That's a good question. Another question is, did a Jewish person 50 years before the time of Christ know that Isaiah and Second Chronicles were Scripture? Mm-hmm. And I think they did. Okay. Paul affirms that the oracles of God were entrusted to the Jewish people. Do you and, think all these... Sorry, yeah, go ahead. I, I didn't mean no, to you go ahead. Do you think all those Jewish groups agreed? The ones in the temple did. The okay. Pharisees and the Sadducees both did. And I know they had their issues. But what was laid up in the temple, there was no disagreement about that. And they understood that they make... The, the, those documents, those scrolls that are laid up in, in the temple, make the hands dirty. They are different than... Any other books. Didn't the Sadducees only take the first five books? And yet, even when they uh, have their guy on the chair, so to speak, the books remain in the temple. So so from your view, there was a consensus that was already existed before Romans 3.2 was penned, and that consensus says whatever's laid up in the temple, that's the canon. That's the Jewish Well, you canon. see this in Scripture, don't you, uh, Moses? Uh, in his time, they they lay up documents in the tabernacle. Uh, uh -huh. A similar thing happens with <laughs> Josiah, and then a similar thing happens with in Ezra and Nehemiah in their day. Uh, so you you do have you do have this tradition, this Jewish tradition, where uh, the people that have the books they are storing them up uh, mm -hmm. in the temple. And there again, there's a fundamental understanding that they make the hands dirty, and by that, what they meant was. They were divinely inspired, spoken by the Holy Spirit, and they were written in Hebrew or Aramaic. Uh, if you want more on this, by the way, I would recommend the book, The Old Testament Canon in the New Testament Church by Roger Olson. He does a remarkable work on the Old Testament Canon in the New Testament Church, as the, the title uh, states there. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so that's what I would say about that. They did know. They, they had the scriptures, and they, they stored them up. It's interesting that they still debated it, though, right? Because well, why did they do that, and when they did it, when did they do that? Well, I mean, and, I, and what were the books that were specifically questioned? Well, um, I did find that in the first century there was a, a debate. Jamnia? No, before before Jamnia, <clears throat> I did find in the first century there was a debate between uh, Shemai and Hillel, right? The two uh, rabbi extraordinaires uh, opposing schools of thought, right? And they did have a debate as to um, whether Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon here that we're talking about today, belonged in the third category called the writings, right? Because <clears throat> you had the, the uh, writings of Moses and then the prophets and then the writings, right, which was what we call wisdom literature. And so it seems like these two major schools did debate as to whether Song of Solomon should be considered under that third category of writings. And I have another... So follow-up question, but go ahead, yeah. Well, so Olson talks about that, and, mm -hmm. it, and there's question about which books. Was it song, was Song of Solomon included in the list that was debated or not? And there's, there's debate about that. Uh, in fact, I think Olson demonstrates that there's just one book, it's Ecclesiastes, that uh, they had specific disagreement about, um, mm -hmm. the, the rabbis did. Um, but uh, 
in, in terms of in terms of Song of Solomon, I don't think there was uh, as much debate as uh, maybe what was what was uh, what has been put forward. Uh, huh. Follow up question. Interesting. Well, I found the opposite. I found that there was you know debate between. Uh, those two major schools for Song of Solomon, and as you mentioned, Ecclesiastes, uh, it just seems strange to me that there would still be this uh, lively debate between something which should have had a consensus, right? It's like, well, here's the standard. It's in the temple. So if it's in the temple, there's no debate. And so it tells me that maybe there wasn't as solidly this you know, closed canon uh, existing already uh, at that point in time. I, I think eventually there is, but I've had a hard time like pinpointing, you know, when that is, you know, I think it was in the 19th century, you know, people went with the Council of Jamnia theory, where it's like, oh, it was, it was Jamnia in uh, 80, you know, 90 or whatever, where they, you know, they hammered that out. And it turns out that, you know, that's not, it's not quite the case. And so that's not really seen as a, as a probable answer anymore these days. Um, man, so many follow-up questions. I'm debating on whether I should <laughs> keep asking you or not. Feel free to just throw off the cuff here too. Or to, to not answer, because uh, <laughs> <laughs> again I, was, I would just point. Uh, Olson does a lot of good work in uh, yeah. working through uh, a lot of the questions that I had yeah. regarding the Old Testament canon in the New Testament Church. Okay, and okay. Um, I've quite, the, the, I, Paul says Paul says that the oracles of God were entrusted to the Jews, and if, uh-huh. if they were, they weren't right. And and I don't think Paul yeah. seemed to have any question about. What was Theonustos, and and what had been entrusted, and uh, yeah, but it's not like he follows that up with a canonical, like with a list of canon, right? He doesn't tell you like, and these are the oracles, and then he gives you the list, right? But why is that? I think there's an assumption for a Jewish man, a Jewish rabbi, as to what is laid up, stored up in the temple, and what documents make the hands dirty. Does Song of Solomon make the hands dirty? There was a there was a a consensus that yes, it did. Or maybe uh, along with all the other documents that were stored up in the temple, they're not like other other works. Well, or maybe they just didn't care about it as much as we do, and so they were okay with having some books that were debatable. I would say that's the case after the temple is destroyed in seventy A.D., and I think that's part of why you have the Council of Jamnia come about. There's question now because we don't have the temple, we don't have the documents stored up. Yeah, so that's an interesting thing, too, because you mentioned Melito of Sardis, you know, going to the Holy Land to figure out what's been stored up, right? What is the canon of the Old Testament? Uh, But, you know, first of all, like, he goes after the destruction of Jerusalem, right? So if there's a canon developed by rabbinical Judaism after the destruction of Jerusalem, which is God's judgment on the Jewish people for the rejection of Jesus, uh, should the Christian accept a canon developed by rabbinical Judaism after the destruction of Jerusalem in 87? You've just glossed over all of the first century church, right? There's an assumption that the oracles were entrusted to the Jews, right? They were, God, and God, God gave his word to his people, who then in turn received it. And so the first century church, they knew what canon was, and I think Melito, if he does anything, just confirms... Yeah. What uh, what the church already had. So you would agree with Melito's uh, canon list? I'd have to look at it again. It doesn't include Ruth. Just so you know. Or is that appended to Judges or Psalms? So you that's, mentioned that's the, that's usually the the traditional placement of Ruth. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
What do you think about Origin and Jerome's canon list? Do you do you subscribe to those either one of those more one more than the other? <laughs> You're gonna make me pull up my where is it? Because here's what I'm thinking, right? I'll just you know I'll, I'll I'll quit messing around, right? Here's here's what I think, right? Origin, he didn't include James, he didn't include Second Peter, he didn't include Second and Third John, but he did include Shepherd of Hermas. And so I, I guess what I'm getting at, right? I'm trying I'm trying not to be you know, a jerk and drag this out forever. But uh, <laughs> the process of canon is a jumbled mess. It just is. Mm. And so I just wanted to clarify, you know, there wasn't this nice list that comports to our Bible that existed for everyone to reference during the first century when our New Testament was being written, right? Who decided which books are in and which ones are out for the Jews and then later for the church? God did. Well, yes, but you're missing the bigger he question. Gave, he gave his word, and they it didn't it. drop from the sky. Okay, that process took time. It was messy. In in appealing to a variety of lists, uh, doesn't make it any easier to understand. It's almost like we need a uh, I don't know some sort of central authority to make a final decision on the matter. But I digress. We, By the way, Ruth is included in Melito of Sardis's list. You know, I found that it wasn't. So you know. Mm. We'll have to better debate that again. Sources. Yeah, you better check your sources, sir. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, where are we sitting at time-wise? It's 52 minutes, so this is the introduction. We're down to the chapter summary. So, diligent listener, if you've made it with us this far, this is probably a good pause, uh, a time to, like, pause and come back uh, later if you're uh, weary of our uh, nagging voices. And so... <laughs> Because there's going to be another hour. We got at least one hour left to do our chapter summaries, right? So, yeah, two-hour special here going on. But, you know, it's, it's good. It's fun. Let's do it. 